He's got one foot in the frying pan and one in the pressure cooker. Believe me, as a bowler, I know that right about now, your bladder feels like an overstuffed vacuum cleaner bag, and your butt is kind of like an about-to-explode bratwurst. Hey, do you mind? I wasn't talking when you were bowling. Was I talking out loud? at the movies. My name is Kyle. I will once again be your host. Joined by the rest of the Munsons. Want to give them a wide bird. What is called a born loser. A real Munson. <laughs> we talk a little bit about what's going on in their worlds. We will start this time with Rigby. Just kidding. He could, He's not here yet. He couldn't even send in the other Rigby. Stand in his place for a little bit. Uh, which, you know, would our listeners be able to tell? Who knows? But nope. he'll jump on at some point. His work life is dragging him. West Coast life. Here we are. <laughs> I thought California knew how to party. And in the opposite, it seems like California, all they do is fucking work. I don't love that. <laughs> I refuse to believe he was working today. I think he's just hung over from a really, a bender of a St. Paddy's Day weekend. How would it be? James. Emma. Just excited to be here. Uh, Glad to have one of my favorite guests to join us again. Um, unfortunately, I'm going through one of the joys of parenting with Michael Kane Jr. getting over an illness, so now my whole family's got it. So I'll be sniffling under the microphone. I apologize for that. <laughs> James, it's been quite a few episodes since we've brought in the uh, the junior reference. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you brought that back. <laughs> she's a very prestigious actress, even though she's only 10 months old. Is she already calling... Uh... Other humans, birds, like other girls she meets. <laughs> no, but I will I will say just in like the last week, she's figured out that if she is very dramatic with her cries, I'll just give her whatever she wants, which has been a pretty cool development to see. That's fair. Yeah, it's like, why can't I have that? And then it's the loudest, most sad, painstaking cry you've ever heard. And I was like, Yeah, you could just have it. I don't I don't care enough. You're gonna control me forever. So just get whatever you want. Aubrey. Congrats on getting back from a vacation. Yeah, that's what it is. Spring break down here. We went on a cruise seven nights. The whole my whole spring break, I was on Royal Caribbean cruise doing what all mid 30 year old teachers do on cruises. I read four books and just shut the world out. (laughs) It was the best seven days of my life. (laughs) <laughs> the real world hit me real hard coming back i'm glad to be here it's a great vacation did spring break right finally for sure case like you said my name is case and uh, i use the he him pronouns and i want to let you guys know that i'm excited because i just came back from my first professional development conference this past weekend being there really helped me understand how blessed i am to be able to have a safe space to talk movies with you guys uh, so thank you all. Not you guys. Thank you all. And uh, that being said, let's table what's going on in my world and let's circle back to that next episode. It's impressive <laughs> that you have worked in, in you know, an offshoot of higher education for so long and you didn't learn the language until this past weekend because... <laughs> Kyle and I have been speaking that lingo for years now. Really shocking. <laughs> Since the last time we recorded, I bought a house and then I maybe didn't buy a house. Ooh. Question mark. We'll see. At, by the time this episode goes live, I will either be a homeowner or I will be looking at market share. So good luck either way. 
Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, we're glad to have one of our favorite guests back, Monty Grohl. He is formerly a host of a weekly movie review podcast, uh, which James and I joined him on several times. And James is one of his regular guests, and that's how we connected with Monty. He now focuses on creating gaming content on YouTube and Twitch. He recently finished his doctorate in biomedical engineering out in Boston, so he is a learned doctor. So Dr. Grohl is here. Yes, sir. But he's lucky enough to do content creation full-time. He still loves podcasting and considers it an honor to be welcomed back to the Munsons to talk about movies and TV. Yeah, buddy. He was previously with us for the Sam Rockwell, Chris Hemsworth, and Haley Steinfeld episode. So he's here for his fourth appearance. Welcome back, Monty. How's the YouTube Twitch life going? Oh, it's going good, but it is an honor to be back. I, I mean it when I say it. It's always really fun to be here, and I appreciate you guys still letting me podcast about movies because I, I miss that. Um, the YouTube stuff's going good, though. It's a lot of work, <laughs> uh, a lot of like trying different things and just seeing what sticks, but... Um, Every day is an adventure, so it's super fun. But sometimes I miss just talking about movies instead of playing video games. Yeah, that's why we're here. Good to have you back, buddy. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we're glad to have you. Let's get rocking and rolling. Waste no more time. Let's get into this. Let's do it. All right, so Rigby is not here yet, but uh, we'll kind of step in and do birthdays in lieu of his appearance. So first up, we have Warren Beatty. Best known for films like Reds, Bonnie and Clyde, Heaven Can Wait, Bullworth. Kind of a legend. Won an Oscar. Been nominated for lots of other awards along the way. Definitely a legend. And I don't mean this to be crass, but he's still alive? He is? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I'm pretty certain (laughs) he's old. That's the right response. Super old. He's at least 20. (laughs) (laughs) At a minimum. According to the Google machine. Okay. Still alive. Okay. So how old is uh, Mr. Beatty? 84. Damn, that's a good guess. I'm going to go 88. I'll go 86 then, right in the middle. That's bold. I'm going to go 81. We got There's got to be a low man. He is turning 85. So James takes that one. Oh, I'm, well done. I brushed up on my Warren Beatty right before we recorded. I know everything there is still about this man. <laughs> All right. And then secondly, we have Pete Holmes, who, very funny guy. Some movies like Don't Think Twice, mm-hmm. a lot of college humor stuff over the years. Extremely funny, dude. Madman movies. Crashing, right? Yeah, he's mm-hmm. hilarious and crashing, which is like a pseudo yeah, a biography. Mm. He's got to be in his 40s, at least. 47. I'm going 42. I'm thinking younger. I think he's 36. 45. Who of you? On the opposite sides of it, he's turning... Fresh age of 44 on March 30th. So Aubrey takes that one. Gotta get one. Always the bridesmaid. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And finally, we'll do star of the acclaimed movie Water with Michael Caine. Eric Clapton's birthday is March 30th. How old is Eric Clapton? (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) I'm I'm abstaining from this because you made me talk about and think about this movie again. Oh, that's that's the first time we've ever had somebody protest. <laughs> I recognize and I appreciate your right to protest. So just to know that. <laughs> Thank you, Case. I feel seen. Seventy-five. I don't know. Seventy-two. I don't, I 
Fuck Eric Clapton. <laughs> <laughs> Two protests on this? <laughs> yeah. Okay. James, I, I understand and I appreciate your right to protest. Eric Clapton's turning 78, so Case wins that one. Damn it. No longer the bridesmaid. Finally! Oh, yeah. Happy birthday to everybody else on March 30th. You have a real solid chance of becoming the most famous person born on March 30th, apparently, because there's only like three people. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty rough birthday. <laughs> there's probably more people with the birthday of February 30th that are famous than March 30th. <laughs> Eric Clapton's famous enough for you guys to protest, so I guess that says something. There you go. <laughs> We've never had that before. No one's protested responding to a question, let alone two people at the same time, so that's funny to me. <laughs> five actors we threw under the wheel for here, episode 81. Those five were Robert Pattinson... Joan Allen, Sanaa Lathan, and then Jamie Bell. But they they don't really matter because the wheel selected John Slatty Daddy Slattery and Madi decided to come hang out with us to talk John Slattery. Yeah. Slattery's got 84 credits on his IMDb resume. He's got some films on there, but lots and lots of television. So, and we're going to talk about as much of it as we feel is necessary. Some things we love, some things we hate. Some things right in the middle, and they're, if you're listening and you're a big Slattery fan, don't hate us if we don't talk about the role that you absolutely love, because there's a good chance we will miss it. But we're going to do our best. But before we get into the minutiae of it, we always start with a little actor trivia and see if James can stump us Fast and Furious style. For those of you who are new, uh, Mod, you're obviously a, you're part of the initiated, but for those of you listening, uh, I'm going to read off three facts. Two of which are going to be true about our man of the hour. One of them is not going to be true, but is in fact going to be true about one of the many illustrious cast members of the Fast and Furious franchise. Madi, I know you're surprised that I'm still able to find facts on Fast and Furious actors at this point. It is years deep now, and uh, it is incredibly difficult to continue to Honestly, find. there's so many of them now. I just saw a trailer for the like 10th one. That is correct. Yes. Uh, Fast X. Uh, they could have went with Fast 10, but I, whatever, you know, they went with Fast X. Um, also, I will say that our boy John is uh, an incredibly private person and non-problematic. So uh, there is not a lot of uh, information out there on this guy other than like him doing very charming interviews in which he offers less about his personal life and more just opinions on things. Uh, so this was uh, difficult to find some facts on him, but I was able to pull them. Fact number one, from humble beginnings, he is the son of a high school teacher and a retired U.S. Air Force Chief Master Sergeant. Fact number two, because he wasn't a very good student, he went to the only college that he was able to get into, which eventually led to his start because he was working in the theater department there. Fact number three, his hair went gray while he was still in college, which made it difficult for him to find age-appropriate roles once he graduated. Mm. The performer that I've selected fits two of those very neatly, and so uh, I'm going to just take a stab. Uh, I think that the lie is number three, because that is about the host of the legendary documentary show Documentary Now, Helen Mirren. Oh, okay. I'm going to say that one is the lie, and that's because it's about James, who was an extra in one of the Fast and Furious movies who could only get into one college, so he used himself 
as the red herring of this particular situation. <laughs> I would love to be an extra in any of those movies. I would hope I am one of the people that gets like cartoonishly murdered in one of them. If you've been holding on us this whole time, yeah. I'm going to be really upset, like genuinely mad. <laughs> That's the joke. He's waiting until episode 100 yeah. or whenever the run ends to be like, by the way, guys, uh, you look in the fourth scene in Too Fast, Too Furious, you can yeah. see me <laughs> behind yeah. Tyrese. I'm one of the guys who gets shot by a tank falling out of an airplane, falling out of a helicopter or whatever. I'm going to go. I think it's the first one and I will continue my trend. And I think that is Bow Wow. Everyone knows that Bow Wow's dad was U.S. Air Force <laughs> Chief Master Sergeant. Yes. I think I'm going to agree with Kyle. It's two is the lie, but I don't know who it would be about. It could be about anyone, but I want to say it's somebody like from... What if it's just like Brie Larson? She's she's in it. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Did Jason Momoa really work in a theater department? Come on, I don't know. <laughs> Give that man credit. Huge nerd. All right, I'm going with Jason Momoa. His hair went gray while he's still in college. Made it difficult for cast in age appropriate roles. Okay, so now he's nearing sixty. You know, it's not surprising. The guy's got a beautiful head of gray hair there, but uh, that's been the case for 40 years. It went gray when he was in uh, his early 20s, still in school. Um, it led to some issues for his professional life as well as his personal life. He mentions that his family gives him shit about it all the time. His sisters always crack jokes. Uh, now he gets referred to as a silver fox. And while that's a compliment when you're in your 60s, when you're when you're like 21, it's not a compliment. <laughs> no. He will say that, you know, he got to play authoritative roles at a younger age because he had the hair and they're like, oh, he's a really handsome older man. He's like, I'm like 34. He's like, I'm not that that old. He's like, I just got the hair for it. Um, so he said, that, you know, some good with some bad there. Uh, fact number two, after high school, he had to apply to college somewhere, and that school was Catholic University in Washington, D.C. His sister had gone there, only one he was able to get into, and admittedly, he wasn't really interested in studying anyway. He's like, I just kind of wanted to act, and if that didn't work out, I wanted to have a degree to fall back on. So I went there, and I just started acting anyway, and it did work out, lucky for him. Uh, and fact number one, uh, he's not the son of a high school teacher or a retired U.S. Air Force Chief Master Sergeant. Um, he actually grew up in a nice suburb in Boston, Newton. I don't, Marty, I don't know if you know the area. Oh, I'm, it's very close to where I'm from. I did know that he was from Boston, but there's plenty of military people out here. Of course. His mother was a CPA and his father worked in uh, importing and exporting of leather. Uh, that fact wasn't about him. It was about Alad Richson, a.k.a. Thad Castle a.k.a. Agent Ames from the upcoming Fast X movie, premiering May 19th, everybody. You should go see it. Sounds lovely. Oh, sure. Ask your doctor about Fast X. <laughs> if it's right for you. Yeah. James, going back to the first one you talked about, did you come across anything with him and Neil McDonough fighting for a lot of the same roles in the 90s and 2000s? <laughs> salt and pepper rolls see the thing is with slattery slattery had black hair so it was super noticeable but neil mcdonald had blonde hair so you could like kind of pass it off right it's like oh it's blondish grayish but like going from like jet black hair to bright white it's like how old are you You're like i'm 25 like, oh all right <laughs> give him credit he wears it well these days yeah he does oh i agree solid as always all right case snapshot in box office history what does a slatty daddy got these days? You know, there's not a whole lot really to talk about. 
Well, I, I take that back. If we included his cameo work in the Marvel universe, he would probably be number one because he's in almost all of them, right? He's in quite a few. Yeah. A lot of the crossover ones. Being that he only played a few scenes um, intermittently throughout it, I've omitted his work. The most interesting story I found while researching box office performance it's not actually about him, but it's a, his co-star and leading man, John Hamm. Fletch Confess did so poorly, John Hamm gave back 60% of his earnings. Which I assume was either like a brilliant professional move, or it was an incredible act of embarrassment about how poorly this movie did, or maybe a combination of both. This movie was budgeted for $25 million, world grossed 657000 losing over $19 million. Damn. It's brutal. Got good reviews, too. Wait, it did? At least according to the internet. I don't know if it was a good movie. It was reviewed well. It actually got really good reviews. I don't, I don't know why it tanked. It's on Showtime right now if people want to watch it. When we look at some of his breakdowns, and I, none of these are going to surprise anybody, He's got the 50th ranked average budget, 61st total box office, 77th on the star meter, coming in at an impressive 4,279. Critic rank is 48. Fan rank is 67. And then he's 48th and 15th in two different box office metrics, which ranks our boy 74th out of 81. It's honestly higher than I thought it would be. To be completely honest. Me too. Yeah. He gets saved um, by a couple of movies. One of them, it's called The Station Agent. Mm-hmm. I don't know a ton about it, but it only had a $500,000 budget and it world grossed $8.7 I was shocked he wasn't the lowest star meter. He's ahead of Belushi, Chaz, Dan Hedaya. <laughs> There's a trend here, isn't there? None of these are shocking. <laughs> He's ahead of Dennis Haysbert, so... Character actors that have been around the game a lot. He, it's kind of where he lands. He's in some bigger films that are rated well, but he's a minor part almost. <laughs> yep. Well, thanks, Case. You bet. Appreciate the uh, the starting point. All right. First major role we're going to say is 1996. So everything before 96 for Slattery, first and foremost, as James mentioned, born and bought in Baston, 1962. Very interested to see how James rates him, knowing his love affair with the city of Boston as a New York Yankees fan. <laughs> uh, I can't imagine that we'll do good things for the man's months and meter scored by the end, but... It's a lovely city. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that. PR. The PR department's been working on him. I don't hate the city. City's just the lovely. people. Just the humans inside of it. I understand. Jeez. Wow. Speaking of like that tension there, he dreamed of being a baseball player when he was younger, played some baseball, wanted to go into a baseball career. But as we talked about, he fell in love with acting and decided to go that route. Uh, got his Bachelor of Fine Arts from Catholic University of America. As James said, it's very hard to find stuff about him. His Wikipedia is now very packed with things. There's not a lot out there on his IMDb trivia. Super Catholic family because of his role in Spotlight. Um, people asked him like, oh, do you know anything about this from your upbringing? And he was essentially saying like, yes, he's like, I wasn't impacted by it, but like, I know of these people. Uh, it, that's why it meant so much to me. Know of the priests that were uh, indicted in this. Um, but other than that, it seemed like he's just like a genuine down to earth guy who had a pretty, you know, uh, normal life 
and was working peaceful. You know, he just seems like a normal dude. And so he's just stayed out of the spotlight other, you know, uh, no pun intended, other than uh, in his acting world. First acting role was in 1988's The Dirty Dozen. He was in 11 episodes of that. So coming out of the gate, for your first acting role, having a recurring character's leads over 11 episodes. So the whole run was looking on IMDb. He was in every episode of that show. And then between 89 and 91, he did four different one-episode TV spots, uh, another recurring role on a show called Undercover, Bram, 13 episodes of that in 1991. So a lot of television over the first four years of his career. Starting in 91, he was did a six-year run on Homefront as Al. So between 91 and 97, he was in 38 different episodes of that TV show. He had really cracked the film side. He had a gap, and really, if you look at his career on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes, he's got a gap between 92 and 95 where he really doesn't do much acting. So it speaks to, he had a lot of challenges. It was not easy for him coming up and coming through the system. And from what I could tell, I don't, I don't think he did a bunch of theater. You know, a lot of actors we cover start on the theater side and then work their way up through there and then come to the, mm-hmm. to the screen. I, I never found any of that. So he truly was like a start on TV guy and struggled to make the conversion over to film. We've seen this in other actors where, as a television actor, you have the luxury of a long plot arc. You can just be slow and steady and being effective on TV, whereas the movie, you got a 90-minute plot arc that you've got to be impactful enough. And so it seems like it's easier to go from a stage actor to a, a really impactful movie actor than it is for a TV actor, based on the different people we've seen. To the point. But he finally cracked the film side with an uncredited but noticeable role in 1996's City Hall as Detective George, a a film that's led by Al Pacino, John John Cusack, and um, Bridget Fonda. It's a a decent film. It's a a City Hall drama. His role is very small in there, but you'll spot him if you turn it on. I enjoy that movie. It's a good movie. It's rated very well. Good. I mean, we've seen a lot of movies with great actors that are absolute dog shit, so I'm not going to necessarily say that. <laughs> Here we are. But what we're going to call his first major role was 1996's Eraser. He played FBI agent Corman alongside Arnold. Aubrey has the review. So Eraser, 1996 film, directed by Chuck Russell, who also directed movies like The Mask and The Scorpion King. Mm. Stars Arnold Schwarzenegger and the lovely absolutely lovely Vanessa Williams. It's a 90s action movie that never really stops or relents and in a way that I found to be almost like nostalgically charming. It's completely absurd. So Arnold Schwarzenegger is a U.S. Marshal that erases, quotation finger, the identities of witnesses and witness protection programs. And he gets... Assigned a woman who works for a company named Cyrez, I think, because she's working with the FBI. That's where John Slattery comes in to kind of like bust them. They have a electromagnetic gun that eventually is going to get sold to the Russians. So she has to go into witness protection program because she uncovers what this electromagnetic gun. Schwarzenegger erases her and then he gets a new partner who wants to find her finds her by some real just terrible work by Schwarzenegger. He basically leads them right to her. <laughs> um, 
And that's when they find out the plot to go to the Russians, the U.S., the government's involved. It's a whole cover-up. And really, basically, what this movie is, is Schwarzenegger very creatively killing a lot of different people to save Vanessa Williams. Um, and then there's an electromagnetic gun. Wait, wait, wait. Arnold creatively killing people in a movie? I do not believe it. I think you're bullshit. Does he say, come with me if you want to live? No, he does like four or five other things they were trying to make sayings. Nice. He has one liner attempts at this point in this movie for sure. Mm -hmm. What was the best one? Uh, What was what he said? He said to like an alligator, like somebody like, here's your luggage or your luggage or something like that. They try to make that one work. (laughs) That was well, alligators were attacking people with. So that happened. Okay. This movie is wild. It's absurd. It's violent. It's kind of awesome. I'm not going to pay a lot of attention. I'm just going to check in every once in a while. It's fun. It's a good time. Slattery's in it for, I think, a total of five minutes. He says nothing of like note. He just kind of shouts like background FBI guy stuff while Vanessa Williams is trying to, like, she's like recording what her uncovering this crime or whatever is. Um, so it was cool to see him, but, you know, the movie's a good time. If you have the taste in the stomach for 90s movies like that and Schwarzenegger, then. I say go all in. I would recommend it for that. If you do not like those movies, do not watch this. The special effects are terrible. They're terrible. They take you out of it. At one point in time, there's fire that looks almost as if it was drawn on the screen. It was really bad. Ooh. This movie also got nominated for a sound effect Oscar, I think. Damn it, you ruined my trivia question. I was going to ask if anybody <laughs> would guess what Oscar it was nominated for. <laughs> I saw that and lost my mind because I thought it was the way it was put on IMDb. It made it look like it was effects, like special effects. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, the standards in the 90s were really low. <laughs> I'm going to say this big, begrudgingly. It was one of the better John Slattery movies I saw. And that is not a terribly high bar. That's an indictment. You're not going to see Arnold movies for like, thought-provoking deep character study you want to see him fucking do the thing you know say corny lines and flex the muscles and (laughs) shoot missiles and shit like this is what you're going for what you got the coolest part of the movie is at the end when he pops up from the ground after he killed some guys and holds both electromagnetic guns in his hands hell yes a regular person can't do because the other guys are doing with two hands and he just is recklessly shooting these electromagnetic guns, which I'm not 100% sure what they do. One character yelled, fry them when they shot it, but the person wasn't fried when they shot him. So I don't really know what they did, but it was cool that he did it. I personally like when he falls out of the plane and doesn't sustain any injuries. That's <laughs> He's just like, well, if I just like tuck and roll when I hit the ground, I should be all right. Like That's not how it works, man. But you know, Arnold's built different, so you just got to have to kind of deal with it. So, Aubrey, what you're telling me, is that John Slattery's performance was out overshadowed by Arnie? Is that what you're telling me? More Vanessa Williams. Mm. But you, if you wanted to do that, you could. You could say that okay. Schwarzenegger got him a little bit. But it was, that would be a screen time thing, though. Who's not overshadowed by Arnold? But, uh, yeah, good luck being in the movie with that guy. It was his second best movie of that year. A jingle All the Way? <laughs> yeah, Jingle All the Way came out that same year. Range. Sinbad didn't get overshadowed by Arnie. I'll say that. That's a fact. Ate every time he was on the screen in that movie. First major role, plays an FBI agent, does the job. Nothing extraordinary, nothing terrible, just does the job. Before our next review, we got some stuff in the late 90s there, early 2000s. First thing I noted, Lily Dale, a TV movie that actually had quite a 
bit of good actors in it in Mary Stuart Masterson, Soccer Channing, and Sam Shepard. Uh, Slattery plays essentially a boyfriend called Will Kidder. He's like the sixth build character in the film, six or seven, so he's not terribly important to it. But again, not the worst TV movie I've ever seen preparing for this podcast. I'll say that. Important life thing, 98, he marries Talia Balsam. They have a son together. He has acted with him at least once, I've noticed from the the resume. Probably more than that from from what I've seen. But got married in 98, still happily married, it sounds like. Yeah, she ended up playing his wife in uh, Mad Men. And it was funny because they go through a nasty divorce. And so it's... (laughs) Like in in the show, in real life, they're happily married, still together to this day. But I always like when couples like portray a, a different version of themselves in in shows like uh, Mac and D and Always Sunny. Like I always like where people are like, yeah, let's just pretend that this isn't how our relationship is at all. All right, so more than one time because I know of a movie where she's plays alongside them. So ninety eight, he's in From the Earth to the Moon. Played Walter Mondale. Uh, HBO special we've covered a couple times with Brian Cranston and Gary Cole about all of the Apollo, so all the Apollo missions. The fake moon landings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the type of stuff that Eric Clapton would get really excited about. Yeah, before saying something racist or something. <laughs> <laughs> Crosses over in the Nev Campbell, Nev Campbell universe in uh, Party of Five. It does a couple episodes there in 98, the show we talked about extensively on that episode. It was in The Naked Man in 98. Where's Marlowe in 98? 98 was a busy year for him. He was in all sorts of things in 98. A couple episodes of Will and Grace in 99. Played Dr. Richard Myers in 17 episodes of Maggie in 98 to 99. This man was just incredibly busy at the late, in the late 90s and then did three episodes of Judging Amy, a, a pretty big show at that time as well. He very much found his uh, niche at that time. Um, I wasn't aware of who he who he was at this moment until this upcoming show, which my sisters watched from start to finish. And when you're six and seven years younger than your sisters, you're not allowed to change a channel. So I watched every episode of sex in the city and it was riveting. (laughs) Let me tell you, I was into it and uh, I didn't know who he was. And then when I saw him on sex in the city and he's playing the very charming, well-dressed, smooth, soft-spoken man, uh, who's kind of into golden showers. And I didn't know what that was when I was like 12 when it came out. And so I was like, what is, I don't understand what's going on. He's like, oh, he wants Carrie Bradshaw, uh, just, uh, Sarah Jessica Parker to pee on him. I was like, oh, cool. This show rocks. Totally in. <laughs> <laughs> so your introduction to him around the, the Willennium was getting peed on by a character in Sex in the City. Wanting to. yeah. He wanted it to happen. He was, he, it he was didn't like, happen? Uh-uh. I don't, never, no, no. Uh, spoiler for that episode. That's the kind of the crux of the episode, is that she didn't want to do it. Poor guy. I watched the, I watched the two episodes he was on, because, I, I mean, I like Sex and the City. I've, dab, I've dabbled. I've watched a few episodes here and there. My wife watched a lot of it. He's really good, though. Yeah. Like, he, he falls in, in a show that's it's in its third season at this time, so it's already has its footing. It knows what it's doing. He jumps in mid-story and blends in seamlessly. He's really charming. He's funny, but he doesn't like overshadow what's going on. He's interesting, so when we cut back to him, you want to know what's going on. And that reveal that that's what he wants doesn't happen until like 
is his second episode, like maybe 10 or 15 minutes in. He's this really charming guy that has like, there's something else there. You're like waiting for the shoe to drop with him, which I found to be a theme in seeing him and stuff. Is he's a really charming, charismatic guy, and you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, though. There's something that's not right. He had a very funny line about this type of plot line is probably not as uh, provocative as it was in 2000. But at that time, once it aired, he got a call from like a cousin of, of his who the first thing she asked was after that episode aired was if his mother had died. And she was like super panicked. And he's like, what? No, why? It's like, because you would never do anything like that if she was still alive. <laughs> he's like, I need to remind you, I come from a very strong Irish Catholic family and they were not proud of that episode by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> like, but now, you know, 20 years later, like you'd see that on like a, like a teen high school romance movie and no one would give a shit. Yeah. To the point you guys are making, he's been in a lot of good films, smaller role in a lot of great films, but he's been in a lot of good TV shows over the years, even if it's only for a couple episodes. And others we'll talk about, obviously he has long runs, but he's been in a lot of, TV, a lot of good TV shows over, throughout his career, including Law & Order. He did two episodes around the same time there at the end of the, the 90s. <laughs> Is Law & Order the most talked about piece of work on our podcast? It's just like, if you're an actor living in New York, it's either you are on broadway or in the theater world in some capacity or you're at least trying to get a guest spot on law and order because it's the only show that consistently films there other than at that time sex in the city so it's like these are the two shows that i could knock out and so everyone does law and order before they eventually like move to la the two shows that i feel like we've had the most people beyond is law and order and then frazier we've had a ton of frazier guest stars over the years really mm-hmm. hmm. also a lot of family guy a lot of stuff like that, too. Yeah, well, people end up mocking themselves on those shows. Simpsons is a big one. We have a lot of people there on The Simpsons. Turn of the century there. First movie he did was Traffic with alongside Luis Guzman. He played ADA Dan Collier. And then post-Willennium, the, after the world had uh, not shut down and lost its mind, he uh, played Dennis in the show Ed, which ran for 17 episodes. And then we're going to get to Lois Krig's score, which is a movie we've talked about once before, and that was on the Chris Rock episode. And we have Bad Company, plays Roland from 2002, and James drew this one. It got a 10%, and I was expecting this movie to be trash. Um, but it, it, there's like a little nuance to this score. So, so a CIA agent played by Chris Rock, uh, spoiler alert, is killed during a nuclear arms purchase in the opening five minutes. His partner, played by Sir Anthony Hopkins, recruits his twin brother, also Chris Rock, who had no idea he even had a twin brother, let alone that he worked for the CIA. The, CIA, the head of the CIA is played by our boy John Slattery, uh, and now Chris Rock's replacement twin brother has to fill his brother's place in about a week to pull off this arms deal. However, enemy terrorists learn of his secret identity and kidnap his girlfriend, played by Kerry Washington. Although having a plot that's like pretty predictable and full of cliches, I thought the movie was like a funny, cheesy action movie. It was like almost a comedy. Um, you know, you've seen like the odd couple relationships before, like uh, like kind of like a rush hour where it's like, oh, we don't blend together. We don't like each other, but then we end up liking each other. It, it's similar kind of vibes between Anthony Hopkins and Chris Rock. Peter Stormare, uh, a young Shea Wiggum. Uh, even uh, Charlie Day and Michael Ely, like these are 
just random cameos that you don't expect to see. It definitely does not deserve a 10% at all. No. I am, in fact, convinced that this movie got a 10% uh, for two reasons. One, and they work together. One, it came out in the fall of 2001. Oh, shit. Big world event happened around that time. And two, uh, this major plot point of this movie. It's about a bomb. <laughs> yeah, Chris Rock has to rescue his girlfriend to save New York City from a nuclear terrorist attack. So I could understand why in the fall of 2001 that plot really didn't go over too well and and people just like took it as a green light to be like oh well it's like cheesy and corny and kind of falls flat and you know maybe another time it's like yeah it is cheesy and corny but movies like these have been successful before uh the budget of this was 70 million dollars and it made 66 million dollars so it almost broke even i just don't think it's a 10 at all and i think it's probably closer to like a 45 maybe a 50 where you like watching like yeah it's cheesy but i enjoyed my time watching it um slattery is perfectly fine as the you know kind of straight man authoritative military style figure um who is the one barking the orders at anthony hopkins who is like the spy who is trying to mold chris rock uh, I was pleasantly surprised. Definitely doesn't deserve the score it got, but giving the circumstances, completely understand why it did. I think it's a really good point, James. That context is important because it's not a 10%er. We've seen many 10%ers, and this is light years better than those. Yeah. It's it's just like a bad two, early 2000s action movie, like similar to Eraser, where like you watch it and you're like, is this going to win an Oscar? I know Eraser was close. <laughs> uh, you're like, no, it's it's not. But is it a 10? No, it's definitely not. <laughs> but then when you put it in context, you're like, you know what? If a, if the world was just getting over like a horrific terrorist attack, I don't know if I'm ready for Chris Rock cracking jokes while a nuke is about to go off in Times Square. You know, it's like, ah, I'm not ready for it. Mm-hmm. That is really good context. Was it pre or post? Because I'm, I'm surprised it wouldn't have got shelved, though. It was post and it did get shelved and they tried to push it back and it pushed it back six months. And it was like, okay. Hey, this movie's done already. Like what, what do you want us to do? <laughs> like, uh, all right, just, just put it out. But I'm glad they put it out. Cause where would we be not talking about it 20 years later? You know? Yeah. I do wonder if Anthony Hopkins knows that he made that movie. Oh, he has to know. <laughs> if you bring that up to him, does he know? He knows that check cleared. Does he care? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a couple years before our next review, he's in a couple TV shows. K Street played Tommy Flanagan, 10 episodes of that. Uh, Jack and Bobby, 04 to 05, 21 episodes of that show, played Peter. A bigger movie there in 2003, played uh, Paul in Mona Lisa Smile, plays uh, Julie Roberts' husband in the movie. And that's, there's not much more to say about his character. He's just kind of trying to stick her in a traditional wife bubble, given the context of the film. I just laugh every time I hear Mona Lisa smile because it reminds me of one of my favorite comedies of all time, Dodgeball. No. It's like in the opening sequence where they're at Vince Vaughn's place. He's like checking voicemails. It's the video store telling him to return three videos. Two of them are porns. And the third one is, in Mo- it's like backdoor slut sign and Mona Lisa smile. <laughs> it just kills me every time. Is he just arm candy in this movie to Julia Roberts? No, he does not that good looking. Okay. Like I say, is that how that works with Julia Roberts? <laughs> no. He's just the guy trying to hold her back, essentially, from 
being the free spirit that she is trying to kind of he's essentially the plot device to keep her in her traditional woman role in the film at a certain part during the movie does she look at him and say i don't want your life <sighs> i don't know but someone on tiktok should splice that it'd be a way better movie <laughs> but speaking of way better movies 2004's Dirty Dancing Havana Nights plays Burt largest audience gap Case got it man you are getting good at your segues buddy right now if you're sitting here listening to this podcast and we just said Dirty Dancing 2 Havana Nights you have a feeling how this is going to go so I'm going to switch it up a little bit and I'm going to start with 10 quick trivia facts before I give you the plot of this movie uh, number one, according to the credits of this movie, when you're watching it, and yes, I watch this movie from start to finish, <laughs> it is quote unquote based on true events. Oh boy. Because it is loosely based on the real life of producer and dance choreography, uh, Joanne Jansen. Number two, wouldn't be surprising to you guys had you watched it. Uh, neither of the leads were trained dancers. Three, sadly, Natalie Portman and Ricky Martin were initially targeted to be the lead roles in this movie. Number four, the movie was filmed in Puerto Rico, but takes place in a pre-Castro Cuba. Number five, uh, this movie was rated number 11 in Entertainment Weekly's top 25 all-time worst sequels ever made. Wow. The joke is on EW because this is a prequel. Get it right, folks. This movie takes place in 1958 when the real Dirty Dancing takes place in 1963. We are introduced to Johnny Castle. As we all know, that's Patrick Swayze's character. He rules in his role, even though they just refer to him as the dance instructor. They're like, oh my God, who's that guy? And they're just like, oh, he's just the dance instructor. Mika Borum, who plays the little sister in this movie, uh, and Patrick Swayze have the same birthday. Different years, though. Number nine. Wyclef Jean is prominently featured in this movie because of his mega hit, Dance Like This. I'm pretty sure this song was used five different times throughout the movie, and I loved every bit of it. Uh, and then the final one is a personal one. I actually enjoyed watching this movie. Oh, baby. I loved it. This is easily the easiest bad movie watch I've ever had in my life. Wow. Old claim. Hey, the music's incredible. Neither of the characters can dance, so they like they cut fast. <laughs> so when there's dancing scenes, you're just like, oh, yeah, all right, all right, all right, I'm into this. <laughs> the audience loves it at 73%, so you're not alone on this one. Dirty Dancing Havana Nights is a 2004 American dance musical romance directed by Guy Ferlin, starring Diego Luna and really uh, Romola Gary. Celia Ward and John Slattery play her parents' prequel to the 1987 landmark film Dirty Dancing, reusing the same basic plot, but transporting it from upstate New York to Cuba on the cusp of the, of the Cuban Revolution. Uh, in fact, this movie also contains a dance competition, and the dancing's so good that everybody loses track there's, that there's assassins to kill the military dictator <laughs> that show up. And as they try to kill him, it's, it's foiled... And he gets so freaked out and he's afraid for his life that he flees the country, at which point Fidel Castro takes place. I did enjoy watching it. I'm not even joking. <laughs> the music kicks ass. It's, it's fun dancing scenes. It's a fun, bad movie. I wouldn't pay for it, though. That's the only regret I have is I did have to rent it. This might be my favorite review you've ever done. <laughs> Flattery. He plays the role in everything else that we've watched. 
he's the authoritative dad, but he does have a little hint of like he's got this like romantic like what if side to this movie, whereas the mom is the real wet blanket. She goes, "Listen, I don't approve of that boy, but that dancing was amazing." And I'm like, "Come on." They made Cela Ward say that? Yes, they did. They made the Queen Cela Ward say that? That's tough. Uh-huh. I almost watched this movie because Cela Ward was in it. My wife, who used to dance and has watched a lot of dancing movies, told me not to watch this movie. <laughs> well, she ain't wrong. <laughs> She's not wrong. <laughs> but your enthusiasm mixed with some of the most ridiculous pop plot points ever in I've ever heard in cinema. I'm interested. The music was good. The dancing was fun. I will never watch it again, though. Um, so you fall firmly on the audience side, is what I'm hearing. Yes, and and probably mainly because of Wyclef. <laughs> Rank all the Dirty Dancing films right now. <laughs> well, the Dirty Dancing universe is really underrated, and I would have to say that um, <laughs> Dirty Dancing 1 is probably number one. Gotta commit. You gotta commit to the bit case until you write Dirty Dancing three. <laughs> yes, I did decide I am gonna draw up a script. What's this one about? I want to see it. It's Dirty can't dancing, and it's in just pick another country. <laughs> well, I'm thinking we might do like Iraq, where uh, right before Saddam Hussein takes power. Dirty Dancing, Iraq afternoon. Korean vibes. That's what I want to see. South Korean vibes. Dirty Dancing, <laughs> putting the soul in soul. Oh shit! Soul to soul. Yeah. Hey, I told you guys in a group text we're going to come up with Dirty Dancing 3, and we have done it. I want to see the screenplay. I'm on it. Six months from now, I want something. I'm on it. Workshop it. I mean, it should be soon, right? <laughs> How many years were it? was it between the one and two? <laughs> yeah, we're probably right on point, yeah. Uh, 17. 17. Yeah. Uh, we're two years late then, David. <laughs> Appreciate you, Case. Seven years before our next review. Uh, first movie, so we got a lot of films in here. Uh, first and foremost, we got Flags of Our Fathers, who we mentioned. We haven't reviewed directly. We talked about it on the Ken Watanabe episode a long, long time ago. But he plays Bud, a, a film that's directed by Clint Eastwood. This was a companion piece to... Letters from Iwo Jima. That was the first time I realized that there was two different films that had opposite perspectives of one event. Monty's face is like, oh, that's an, that's a thing? I didn't know that. <laughs> I, that's really cool. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Are they both good? I think they are. Letters from Iwo Jima is great. This got an 80 meta score, 79. Okay. So. okay. Iwo Jima is the one that like everyone talks about. Yeah. Great cast. Did this movie star Ryan Phillippe? Sure did. Ryan Phillippe, Barry Pepper, Adam Beach. That stopped it. <laughs> <laughs> Neil McDonough, his twins in this, and Paul Walker. Oh, shit. Don't you throw that man under the bus. Jamie Bell was also in it. So, <laughs> one way or the other, we were talking about Flags of Our Fathers today. That's all I know. And that is a badass name, Bud Gerber. Mm-hmm. He looks like a Bud Gerber. He sure does. Well, James talked about he was first introduced to Slattery through. I watched that first season of Desperate Housewives and was hooked back in 07. And, uh, I love that show back in the day. I gave up on it after a certain point. I, I don't know if I was the target market for Desperate Housewives, but I love the <laughs> I love the way they constructed the story in the first season uh-huh. with the dead woman and kind of setting up the intrigue. And uh, he plays Victor in 14 episodes of that show. And I remember him in that show. I remember that hair with all the housewives. He was rejected in Sex and the City, and that was the end of his run there. 
How was he killed off in this show? I'm just trying to remember if he, if he got peed on in Desperate Housewives. I don't know if he did. <laughs> he dies a horrific death in this show. Oh, seriously? He's, he is seriously killed off. Yeah, he does. He gets impaled by a fence. I remember hearing that. Yeah, I've, I've heard that. He must have done somebody wrong if he got impaled. <laughs> well, it's a little desperate. On that on that cove down there, you got to be careful on that road. Those women are a little 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 risque. All right, but the big one starting in 07, This is the thing he's most known for. I don't think that is an understatement by any stretch of the imagination. Eighty nine episodes on Mad Men as Roger Sterling, 07 to twenty fifteen. I loved Mad Men, and I think his character of Roger is one of the two uh, most likable characters on the show. I think he's tremendous, and I. Don Draper played by John Hamm, who's like kind of like the anti-hero, which was very popular around this time. Uh, and he's like the likable version of that, but he's still not a good person. And it's intriguing. Uh, you're, you root for him and you see his character grow. And I think he is tremendous in this role. And I think he should have won an Emmy. So there's 92 episodes of Mad Men and he's in 89 of them. Is there a significant reason why he wasn't in three? My guess is that it's one of the few episodes where um, it is focusing specifically just on John Hamm's character. Uh, but he is a major factor. He is essentially a co-star in it. He, When he was uh, auditioning for the role, he actually had auditioned for Don Draper and they let him do the entire different process. And they were like, Hey, listen, like you did a great job, but like we kind of already have this casted and the guy's here and we would love for you to read with him. And he's like, and then John Hamm walks in and I was like, Oh yeah, they definitely have this casted. That guy, that's the guy. <laughs> he's, he's like, That's clearly who they're trying to do. He's like, I didn't want to have Roger Stoling, Sterling's role, but that was just because in the pilot, he's not a major part of the pilot. And they like, essentially begged me they're like we think you'd be great for it we promise you he's a major part of the story he's just not a major part of the pilot um and obviously it was a career changing role for him mm-hmm. i kind of think how he does in mad men is probably the better version of what his career could have been he of the supporting characters he's like one of the biggest ones He's in a lot of the episodes. He does really well. His character has a lot of things going on. Like, and he excels in this show. Like he's what he's known. It's what I know him for. And for a while he was the guy from Mad Men to me. Uh-huh. I feel like for a lot of people, that's kind of who he's going to be. He's going to be the guy from Mad Men because he's just great. He's so great in that role. And it's what I saw in a lot of the other stuff that I've seen him do. I, saw on this it's a great show it's just not for me i don't have any like crazy takes his character is very much of like charming guy kind of like that guy but there's something else going on like he's kind of he's got a lot of other things going on which seems to be his bag that seems to be the thing that he can tap into the best and just seeing him on a long running series where he can be a supporting character and still have a lot to do i wish i would have i wish i could see him do that a lot more He's like at the height of his powers in this. One of the things I find super fascinating about his character in this, and because I don't think I've seen it in other shows, is in the third season, his character takes LSD. And this takes place in like the 60s. And they use it as like a launching point for a dramatic change in his character. 
Hmm. And I've never really seen that in a show before where it's like, hey, he had an epiphany and he's like kind of a different man. And three seasons later, like, you know, he's not a great person anymore, but like he, this one episode, he has this mind altering drug experience. And then from then on, he's like, yeah, I'm just going to kind of do things differently. And I, I thought it was a really fascinating way to show character like growth because I've never seen that one kind of uh, catalyst moment before on a show. Um, He's so likable and smooth talking and you could just tell that like he's spiraling and he's depressed and he's trying to find himself and his marriage is falling apart, uh, but he's still able to like keep this business going really well. James, did you happen to see who wrote that episode? Was it uh, somebody named Aaron (laughs) Rodgers or future Jets starting quarterback? Was that who it was? Fresh off an ayahuasca uh, retreat, essentially. It sounded like they got hypnotized by the guy in Office Space. <laughs> One, great references, both of you. Uh, <laughs> two, Aaron Rodgers can do all the drugs he wants on the Jets. I'm very cool with it. <laughs> with Slattery also for Mad Men, it's his first time uh, directing. Oh, okay. And he directed a few episodes, and he was asked, like, well, how do you think you did? He's like, well, I assume I did pretty good because after the first time they asked me to do it again later, so it couldn't have been that bad. I was like, oh, all right. Well, I guess that's a very practical way to look at your directing experience. <laughs> he admits that it bothers him that he was nominated four times and didn't win because supporting actors are usually the first in the award show. Oh, it's like, yeah. And so then you have to sit there for three hours hearing about how like you don't <laughs> deserve to win for three hours. He's like, and it just sucks. He's like, <laughs> he's like why am I here? You know? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. Other people are great. He's like, but you know, I went first and I lost and then I had to hear, yeah, and you don't deserve it for three more hours. Like, ugh, this sucks. It won 16 primetime Emmys, but that's like... Okay. No, I'm just kidding. It's, it's like costume art. It's, it's not at a few. Like, John Hamm won lead actor, supporting actress one year, and Robert Morris for guest, but the other was like yeah. series, hairstyling, makeup, stuff like that. You know, first it was The Sopranos with the kind of anti-hero and then Walter White and Breaking Bad. And so this was like the third version of this. And since they're all kind of overlapping, people were acknowledging that this was great TV, but they they're like, yeah, but like eh, not as good as the other ones. And so we'll give you the awards and the recognition. Uh, and that's why Slattery's like, I'm kind of pissed. He's like, I wanted to fucking win. You know? And I wasn't. <laughs> I just kept showing up and losing. This is the show that made my girlfriend love fall in love with John Slattery, which is the reason I chose this episode. I actually have like seen very little of Mad Men. And it's just one of those ones that's like, there's so many episodes. And if you don't catch it when it was going on, it's really overwhelming to be like, okay, time to start a 92 episode series because now there's 6 million shows out, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they're all 45 minutes. Right. Right. It did win outstanding drama series in 2011. Oh, Good for them. It won in 2010 as well. And 2009. But yeah, wow, it won for three years in a row. Four years in a row. Charlie Wilson's War, 2007, alongside Philip Seymour Hoffman, Emily Blunt, plays Cravely. Another, a a role that you would very stereotypically expect that John Slattery would play. Another authority role in this operation. Nothing surprising, but a very good Tom Hanks slash PSH role film to check out. And even Emily Blunt's great in there too as a kind of a 
She likes to sleep with powerful men in this film. And then the main reason we didn't include much of the Marvel stuff, because he's been in a lot of Marvel films as Howard Stark, Tony Stark's dad, is because like in Iron Man 2, when he appears in the film, it's showing an old piece of footage that he had sent to his son. He doesn't really get like any significant screen time. Correct me if I'm wrong. Until Avengers, Avengers Endgame, right? And that, yeah. And it's a really cool scene. It's a very emotional scene with, and so I like his character in all the Marvel projects, but he just doesn't get much screen time. It's always funny to me, like when they decide to use John Slattery and when they decide to use Dominic Cooper, who like played mm-hmm. Tony Stark in uh, in the Captain America movie, how, and they like don't really look alike at all. Um. But I, I think I, I think I prefer John Slattery. I agree. They utilized him well in, in the little bits of time that he had. Like his part in Iron Man Two is small, but it's really important to what's going on, especially if you like that movie. Yeah. But he also just carries the right demeanor. Like all the stuff that I've noticed about him as an actor—super charming, charismatic, handsome dude—that's all what you would expect Howard Stark to be. But also kind of shady. <laughs> Yeah, kind of an asshole. I, I, he, yeah. he plays like a good kind of asshole, especially mm-hmm. in like some of this next stuff coming up. And that's exactly what I would that's what I would expect Howard Stark to be. Yeah. So when you see John Slattery show up as Howard Stark, it goes, that makes perfect sense. And I know I said this before, and I'll say it again. Iron Man 2, Sam Rockwell's character is criminally underutilized. I think he's coming back. I hope he returns because... I think I have heard that. Everybody's coming back, man. I mean, yeah. They're all Everyone's coming back. back, but I think he might be in Armor Wars, which now might be a movie. I, I don't know, but I, th- I think he's back. He just like gets cucked hardcore in that film, and it's just he like, knows. ah, there's so much more that his character could could be other than just being cucked. Yeah. An episode of Thirty Rock in 2010, so we hit the new the new decade here, and then I think my favorite John Slattery movie role, and that's his role as Richardson in the Adjustment Bureau, alongside Emily Blunt and Anthony Mackie. I'm not super impressed by most of his film stuff, but his role in Adjustment Bureaus, that if I was going to pick a film role, this is probably my number one in terms of what he brings to the table. I like Adjustment Bureau. I think it was improper, uh, unfairly hated on when it came out because it's got a kind of a religious tone to it. Mm-hmm. But I enjoy this movie a lot. Great movie. I agree. But he easily could have been cast as one of the CIA villains in the Bourne series. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Rigby's not here, but he's supposed to cover largest critic app, which is Return. Plays Bud 2011. So it's essentially a soldier played by uh, Linda Cardellini returning from um, a stint in, I want to say, Iraq? In the military. So she's coming back from that and trying to just get reacclimated in life and what's going on in her world and all those kind of things. And she's just struggling with all of that. Michael Shannon is her husband slash boyfriend type situation. And she's got a family. She's dealing with the stress and trauma of what she went through. She's struggling. Their family's struggling. Uh, Slattery is in this movie for a bit. His second half, like the second half of the movie, he picks it up. They meet in um, PTSD group. They meet and they talk about that kind of stuff. I'll be honest. It's either that or like an alcohol thing. I can't remember which one because she did get a DUI. He kind of offers her an escape from everyone in her life and all over her trying to get her stuff together. And then, you know, John Slattery kind of turns dark <laughs> on like a nasty drug bend. 
Ooh. <laughs> yeah. So it fits into the charming, funny, oh, he's great. And then it's, the shoe drops. Boom. <laughs> Here it is. Uh, I think the movie's great, though. It's it's my type of movie. It's slow paced. It's very character driven. It's small. The stakes are small. It's really just focusing on like this person, their emotions, how they deal with the trauma, how they deal with what they've been through, and how it affects everybody around them. And Linda Cardellini is outstanding in this movie. Like Michael Shannon is great because he's always great. John Slattery's great. But this if you're not sold on Linda Cardellini for some reason, then watch this movie because it's it's like this is top tier acting from her. This is like it's like a heavy hitter performance from her. It kind of sounds like Causeway. Um, I think that one's a little more like more low key than what this sounds like, but that that's a really good movie too, if people haven't seen that. Yeah, Causeway is a good Causeway is a good comparison to draw from this. Causeway's a little darker. Yeah. Okay. Because like this doesn't spoil anything, but it there is not a ton of reveal. Okay. Yeah. Causeway has like reveals of what was going on. There's not a reveal here. A lot of people in her life are like, what's wrong? What happened over there? Da, da, da. And she's like, nothing. But her actions and her the way she's processing her emotions say that something crazy happened, but we don't ever find out. His wife is in this movie with him. So that's the other acting credit I noted with Talia. Played Julie. And uh, my question for you, Aubrey, is where do you fall on the critic gap? The critic gap is eighty three forty three, so another pretty significant gap here. Oh, I'm I'm on the high part of this. I'm with the critics. Around an eighty. I like this movie a lot. Yeah. Okay. Pretty stark gap. I wouldn't recommend it to everybody. You gotta have. You gotta want to watch this. You gotta want to like really be into where it's going. But mm-hmm. it's definitely. I'm definitely with the critics. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, four years before our last review, uh, The Simpsons, Mad Men. He lends his voice to a one of the better documentaries I've seen in the past like decade plus, and that's Mia Maxima Culpa, Silence in the House of God. It's available, I think, on HBO. Highly recommend people check it out. Not for John Slattery. If you want to do a double feature with that in Spotlight, wow, would those two pair well together for a really heavy uh, child abuse night. But would it, would it do the job? Yes, it was. <laughs> That's what everybody tried to line up. <laughs> watch Doubt afterwards. <laughs> if you want to watch two films back to back about how priests are awful, boy, do I have the features for you. <laughs> Great documentary, though. In Our Nature, he plays Gil, a, a small indie father-son drama in the wo- out in the woods. He's one of the four main characters in the film. Uh, again, he actually gets some meat to play with in the film. It's not great, It's but again, it's a smaller indie about basically a father-son have been drifting apart and kind of come together over a couple days in the woods with their significant others. Gabrielle Union plays his wife or his girlfriend in this movie. Oh, it's Zach Guilford is the son. <laughs> I so, love Zach Guilford. I wish that guy was in more stuff. I wanted to get to this because he was in there. I, I strongly support all Friday Night Lights and Friday Night Lights adjacent actors. Yep. So <laughs> I just couldn't, I couldn't get to it, but I exactly. wanted to get to it just because of that. I don't think he's a bad actor, though. No, no, he's he's good. I th- I think he he needs to play like a certain type of person. James, we didn't get to play this game earlier, but in our nature had a one million dollar budget, and it raked in seven thousand. Maybe you could advise them what they could do with their seven grand. Oof. <laughs> they could pay off the remainder of my uh, two thousand and sixteen Nissan Rogue. Uh, what I, what I owe on that. <laughs> Funny. We don't get sponsored by the Nissan Rogue soon. I don't know what else to do. 
If they could just Venmo me that money, I'll pay off that note. It'll be great. Get a hold of Brie Larson's people. She's like the Nissan spokesperson right now. So <laughs> over a three-year period between 2013 and 2015, he does one to four episodes of some big shows. So Daily Show, Cleveland Show, and Arrested Development. James, do you remember his character on Arrested Development? No, not at all. I can't either. Was he on the new season that I was told not to watch? That's my guess. He plays Dr. Norman in season four, episode two, and season four, episode six. Oh. Borderline personalities and double crossers. So he's a doctor. That doesn't count. I mean, I love Arrested Development, but if I don't remember him, then my guess is he's on the the season that I was vehemently told not to watch. (laughs) (laughs) He makes his feature screen directing debut after doing a couple of Mad Men episodes in God's Pocket director, screenwriter, and producer of a film that features PSH and John Turturro. So we've talked about it a few times. It's, I hate to say it, it's one of PSH's least, it's one of my least favorite PSH movies from the PSH episode. But that guy also has a godlike resume, so it's it's kind of like comparing contrasts there. Yeah. Keep it cruising, baby. We're cruising, we're cruising. Uh, Ted 2 played Shep Wild, 2015. I can't remember him in that movie. I couldn't either. Me either. I saw the stills. He looks like he was in a courtroom. Ant-Man 2015. And then he's in six episodes of Wet Hot American Summer. First day at camp. Plays Claude. And he's fun in that show. He's he's kind of a sassy uh, theater director. He's like uh, he and Amy Poehler are the ones picking all everybody who's going to be in theater show. That's right. Wait, isn't Bradley Cooper in that too? As something with Amy Poehler? Bradley Cooper's in the movie, I believe. Okay. He's in the show too. I think he's in the show. Problem is I watched the show the day it came out all at that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I watched it from start to, to finish. And I remember being like, oh, this is great. And I don't remember a single plot point of it because I just blew through it in an afternoon. Yeah. I mean, the movie's a classic. I enjoyed the show very much. I also enjoyed that they aged everyone appropriately in real life, but not on the show, and they never acknowledged it. I thought that was great. I'm, I'm just glad I got the H. John Benjamin origin story of how he turned into a talking can of beans. So that was the important thing I needed as to how the hell we got there. I like that Michael Showalter is like a cool 70 pounds heavier, and they never acknowledge it. And he still dresses like a high school kid. And <laughs> and Elizabeth Banks looks not a day older. No, nah, she hasn't aged at all. Yeah. <laughs> What's her face from the Mighty Ducks? Marguerite Moreau, still gorgeous. Speaking of gorgeous humans, Connie Moreau in the shit in Mighty Ducks. Man. Mm, yeah. Oh, I thought you were talking about me, Kyle. That's right, baby. What's up, Briggs? Sorry, sorry, guys. It's all right. We're we're just getting to highest critic score. I walked in, and you're talking about gorgeous humans and perfect timing. That's right. Before you leave the year 2015, Mm -hmm. I cannot let you pass over season one, episode two, documentary now, Canuck Uncovered. How would I forget? He plays William H. Sebastian, which is a a very important role in this story, and he doesn't have a line the entire movie. And I'm going to say this is my favorite role because he doesn't speak you know it's just i think it's i think it's a pivotal project in his career because it's an important documentary when you describe the plot of this documentary to me or to this of this documentary now so i was dying laughing because <laughs> if you've ever seen the nook of the north it's it's a 
famous documentary film from like 1922. It's like thought of to be like one of the first <laughs> documentary movies ever. Uh, and to think that they made like a mockumentary of this is brilliant. I wish I'd seen it. I think it's hilarious. <clears throat> what we find out in this documentary is that the whole thing was not as it seems because William H. Sebastian actually didn't do anything. Uh, Nanook was actually the one with all the choreography and cinematography chops. It's very funny. If you haven't watched any of the documentary now episodes, start with this one and then do like I've done and just keep watching them. I'll start watching it, Case. Next time we run into an actor, we're documentary now. Watch it for you. It's a great show. It's one of my favorite finds of the last five years. High praise. All right. Highest critic score is 2015's Spotlight. And every five episodes, our guest strikes the wheel on highest critic score. So Monty got this and didn't have to review something like Bad Company. <laughs> so Yeah, I lucked out because this movie is awesome. Sure did. So Spotlight came out in 2015. It is a biographical drama film about the Boston Globe's investigative journalist unit called Spotlight as they are doing work to undercover the or to uncover the systemic child sex abuse by dozens and dozens of Catholic priests in the Boston area and then subsequently the Catholic Church's intentional cover-up of all of those incidents. Um, it's directed by Todd McCarthy. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And fun fact, it's like, since um, The Greatest Show on Earth, it is the only Best Picture winner to win less than two other um, Academy Awards. Oh, that's a good fact. Yeah, so it only the only other award that it won is the original screenplay. Um, so it stars an ensemble cast of Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, really big names, Rachel McAdams, Liev Schreiber, Stanley Tucci, which I believe you guys have covered before, and then, of course, John Slattery, amongst others. Mm -hmm. And um, I rewatched this film yesterday, and like it's, it's just really an undeniable film. It's very, very well made. It's very effective in what it's trying to do. It's not a documentary, obviously, but when I think about what makes a good documentary, I think I ask myself, is the documentary itself good, or is the story just that good, and the documentary is only mediocre? And I think that while this film is really great, it does have the benefit of just having this incredibly emotionally gripping story. It's very, very upsetting, um, regardless of whether you have any involvement with the Catholic Church. And the thing that I really noticed on this this most recent rewatch is that it's really unique for a journalism story or like sort of a, a real life biopic kind of story thing. Because the film does not really have a main character. I think if you think of stuff like Aaron Brockovich, for example, where they're doing some sort of like social injustice fighting, that's a law movie, but you know, there's all types of these journalists in movies. You don't really know anything about the characters. The movie kind of just starts and they're there and they're investigating. And the main character of the movie is the story and the journalism. And I think that that really makes for a very effective and engaging film because you're really like following them and not really getting caught up in like interpersonal drama or anything. And so I was trying to think like, why did this film win best picture? I mean, it's obviously really good, but I don't know if anybody has checked the other best picture noms from this year, but it is freaking stacked. That year is insane. Yeah. And there's a handful of movies that didn't get nominated that should have been in there. What were the other ones? So we got The Big Short, Bridge of Spies, Brooklyn, which I haven't seen, Mad Max Fury Road, Love The Brooklyn. Martian, The Revenant, and Room. Like, insane 
category. But I think what really did this thing a lot of favors is that the film has such an emotional and effective last 10 minutes. Like, uh, I'll admit, I don't cry in movies very often, but I cried yesterday rewatching this just because, like, Damn. you know, it's it's a gut punch of a of an ending. And it really just makes you realize, like, you know, there, it, it, it ends in a positive note. I, I don't know if I want to spoil the movie, but it ends in a positive note. But then it kind of, like, reminds you just how big this is and how Im- impossible um, fighting something as large as what they're fighting here is um, just a really, really effective movie. In my opinion, the, the only other thing I have to say is that John Slattery here, which is who we're talking about is fine in this. Like, you know, he has a couple good lines. He gets to make a couple jokes, but it's a pretty thankless role. Um, it's almost like a meaningless role because he's kind of like a middleman where he owns the, the magazine he is. or owns the newspaper, but doesn't actually run the newspaper or vice versa or whatever. So he's like, he's more or less just a guy that they bounce exposition off. Um, he doesn't have like a lot of strong opinions in the movie, like Mark Ruffalo or Michael Keaton, but you know, he's solid. He's like a very welcome presence. Um, there's a couple lines that I think are really good from him. I, I have the same opinion on his role in the movie that it felt very, it's almost like he didn't need to exist in between Keaton and Lee of Schreiber. Yeah. To the point where like, I want to send the bobs in and have the bob be like, so tell me what is it you do here? <laughs> well, spoiler alert. Uh, the world kind of did that to newspapers for you anyway. So, because <laughs> yeah. he, he's based on a real person. Oh, I bet. These are all real people that they're playing. So uh, I'm, I'm a, I assure you, middle management at most newspapers doesn't exist anymore. Yep. Yeah. He's. He, I kind of forgot that he's in it, to be completely honest. So much of the focus is on Keaton's character. Uh, they spread it out pretty well, but it's mostly on him. Mark Ruffalo is arguably the the main character, even though he's really not. Mm-hmm. But, you know, then you have Rachel McAdams and... Even like Stanley Tucci plays a really big role in this, which I didn't really remember. But like, yeah, he's there's awesome. not a ton for John Slattery to do. In fact, for a while, he's almost like a wet blanket where he's sort of just like, hey, yeah, like you, you shouldn't be doing this. Don't waste your time with this. Yeah, I'm taking you off it if you don't find a better scoop or something like mm-hmm. that. He's definitely sort of overshadowed by Michael Keaton for sure in this. Mm-hmm. Who I think Mike, Michael Keaton's my favorite part of the movie, followed by. Ruffalo and then probably Stanley Tucci. I'm a Tucci guy in this movie. I love his character. Stanley Tucci's out of control in this. He's awesome. But Ruffalo's kind of like the the if you've ever seen All the President's Men, he's kind of like the Dustin Hoffman character in that. Like in super intense, like wants to always always feels like he needs to like have a leg up on on a scoop. And I would say that Slattery in this is like you said, he just kinda he's his I love this movie. It's my favorite one of my favorite movies the last ten years. But his role is pretty interchangeable in this. Mm-hmm. I think they could could have cast just about anybody to play this, unfortunately. Yeah, it's kind of surprising that they even like kept the role in it because you know when you hear about all of these um, real life stories, they usually kind of like amalgamate people, right? Or like mm-hmm. he very easily could have just been kind of ushered into the uh, the Michael Keaton role. But I think that kind of speaks to the films. Like I I didn't do any research on this, I'll be honest, but like. I'm pretty sure most of it is fairly ac- accurate. There's not a ton of like liberties taken other than like specific conversations and dialogue or whatever. Yeah. But like the general events are completely true. So I think it's a testament to the movie's like desire to be as accurate as possible. 
probably so that the Catholic Church can't be like, hey, <laughs> this is bullshit or whatever, you know? Right. I re- I saw in a video that he was one of the last ads to the cast. So by the time he signed on, they didn't tell him who, who else was until he signed on. Like, oh, then I learned that all these other big actors were involved. So I don't know if his character, like character was laid at or if they just casted him last mm. for as little influence as he has he does have a nice little character turn because he's the one in the end who's like defending it to he's like the story needed spotlight to for it to be revealed even even michael keaton's like you know argues that like they didn't do enough um so i thought that was interesting but my my takeaway every time i watch this movie is how watchable it is mm-hmm. yeah because it shouldn't be you shouldn't like I enjoy watching this movie. I'd watch it. I'd watch it right now. Mm-hmm. Like it's in that's not really given the topic. That's not what you should mm-hmm. take. Away. Like that's not that shouldn't be the takeaway. That's a great point. That's the key to how it won. I think mm-hmm. is because like I think it's a great movie. I don't have a lot of things like nits I would pick on it from like any kind of criticism standpoint. But I think the thing that pushes it over the edge is just how enjoyable it is to watch. Because even I got can't wait to watch this movie about kids getting hurt. (laughs) Yes. The one thing I have to say about this movie before we move on is that because I'm like a Boston person, I always find it really, really funny that every single Boston movie has to like name drop Boston neighborhoods for no reason. Like there is no reason for it, but they'll just be like, yeah, I'm talking to a woman. She lives down in uh, Dorchester or (laughs) this woman from Jamaica plain. It's like, I don't, we don't care. And I can't think of any other, like kind of New York, maybe with like Brooklyn and Queens and the Bronx and stuff. But like, there's no other place maybe LA that like really, really likes name dropping neighborhoods. Not to that extent though. They just don't say them as funny as they do in Boston. That's why they yeah. say them in each movie. They got to let you know, this is authentic. All right. L- listen to my accent and I've yeah. named the street that, you know, clearly I know. Well, I wonder if, was there a Dunkin' Donuts anywhere in this movie? <laughs> they had Dunkin' at a meeting in the very okay. first right. meeting scene. Good. They were, they had Duncan. Let's finish this out. Last couple of years here uh, as we get to the present before we get to top performances. So, uh, six episodes on Veep plays Charlie 2016. I got a couple of Veep fans on the on the show here. Love Veep. Me too. I love, love Veep. Veep. I can't remember. What is, who is he in this? He is like the head of the bank of like brought on as like advisor for one of their like financial boards. Okay. And him and Selena like start flirting and they end up hooking up. Mm. And then his bank needs to be bailed out during the financial crisis and her team is like you can't bail out the bank of the guy you're fucking like there's just no way you could do that and it doesn't look bad (laughs) and so she like bails out the competitor bank because it'll keep her like ratings up and he's like what the fuck (laughs) like like, of all the people like you can't bail me out i totally buy him as a wall street ceo too Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Veep is hilarious and it's so well done and it's like it so is. cleverly written and the actors are perfectly cast. I think he was great in the show. It's like a Sex in the City thing, like what I was saying earlier. He jumps in this show. This is like season, was it five or it was like late in the run? Yeah, it's late. And he jumps in and blends in seamlessly. Like he is all the things that I've said he is the entire time. He doesn't try to be like, like his character is funny, but it's like more like, like understated the humor that he brings to it. Uh It's not as big as everybody that's around him. He just comes in and fits into what they're doing. He could have made it all the way to the end and I would have been happy. Like 
he just does a good job of blending into like good established cast and shows. Mm-hmm. 2017, he's in the movie Churchill, plays Dwight Eisenhower, kind of a big time biopic role there. Brian Cox plays Churchill. I had never saw this and never never heard of it until this episode, actually. Yeah. I hadn't either, and it kind of shocked me that I hadn't, considering the star power in some of these roles. It probably got overshadowed by the, another movie about Churchill that I believe came out that same year. Was, was it Darkest Gary Oldman? Hour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Darkest Hour, yeah. Academy Award winning performance. I should say. You see the extended appearance in Avengers Endgame 2019, and then he does a bunch of TV there between 2020 and 2021. So somewhere between one to ten episodes of shows like Mrs. America, Next, Girls 5 Eva, Santa Inc., and then I know James was like motivating us to watch the episode of Modern Love, which I did. He's actually two episodes. It's very good. Dude, he's in two. I thought he was only in one. He's in the season finale. The, the the season finale like has all the stories interweave yeah. kind of. But he and uh, he and Tina Fey in their episode where they play a lot of tennis together. They're very charming in this. I like this a lot. I agree. I was I was impressed for a show that I had not heard of um until this podcast. And then I kind of heard the plot. I was like, all right, it sounds pretty fascinating. And so I instead of watching all of them, I was like, I'll just watch his episode and it's like maybe start to finish like 35 minutes and there's a complete character arc and the whole mm-hmm. story. And I just, it was really well done. I've only seen the first season, but I actually think a lot of them are good. Like they're they're It's very, very um, like kitschy. So like you have to go in expecting like, like very just pat and almost emotionally manipulative stories. But I think there's, there's a lot of really good actors playing like, just telling really interesting stories. I I would I would recommend at least the first season. I haven't seen the second one. I agree. I was all over the show when it came out because John Carney was the kind of the guy behind it, and I'm a big fan of his. He directed Sing Street and Begin Again and Once. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, so I'm a big fan of his. So I was all over this. There, I enjoy the show a lot. They they kind of vary in how good they are, but mm-hmm. I'm a I'm a fan of pretty much all of them. This one, this episode is a really good one though, in particular. Also, Girls 5 Eva is incredible. I don't mean to completely switch to a different show, but I think John Slattery (laughs) plays himself in it, and it's a fantastic show. Highly recommend. It's on Peacock, so... He does play himself, yep. Yeah, it's like the hardest part of any show recommendation. is like, yeah, sorry, it's on Peacock. (laughs) It is moving to Netflix, though. With, uh, With Modern Love, their story is... It is him and Tina Fey, and they're married, and he plays an actor. And I don't know if they talk about what job she had, but it's queer, like, their relationship's near the end of their relationship. And they're a marriage that is struggling, and they're about to send one of their kids off to college. And they kind of realize that, like, they don't have a lot in common other than their love for their kids. And in only, like, 35 minutes, you're able to see them, like, acknowledge the issues they have, grow, and you know, figure it out kind of. And I, for only a half hour, it was like kind of a heartwarming story to see go from like, Hey, this is not going to work out. And they say some brutal shit to each other in that first 10 minutes uh, to like a marriage that's working out really well in the end. I don't know. I was, I was moved by it. Our last big TV show to mention here is the good fight plays Lyle alongside uh, Gary Cole, 10 episodes of that kind of the, the follow up to the good wife a few years after. Both big shows that have yeah, this show's a huge show. My mom likes this 
the show. And she liked The Good Wife, too. And Christine Baranski is the lead of both of those. Yep. Getting that, getting that uh, network TV paycheck, baby. Can't complain about that. Oh, wildly successful show. People love this shit. And then uh, Confess Fletch. As we mentioned earlier, we talked a little bit. The, uh, the failed financial film of Confess Fletch. This is the weirdest sequel ever. Yes. The comedies ever. I didn't even know this movie was coming out. The, the marketing behind it was so bizarre. And then I watched it on Showtime like two months ago, and I didn't really find it that funny. I, and I love John Hamm, and it was cool to see those two guys together after Mad Men. But yeah, I didn't really find this movie that enjoyable. In fact, it's their reunion is the most important point there. All right, Rigby, I prepped. I'd like, just in case you weren't going to make it, I looked up to see if I could find some John Slattery top performances. And I found a best movies list, and I'm wondering if that's what you're going to use. But there wasn't much to play with. I uh, did not find a roles list. I'm curious which ones you found. I found one from throughtheclutter.com. Yeah, that's the one I have too. It's like 30 movies. My favorite performance, obviously, is Mad Men. I think it's an iconic role. He's second to the second lead in the show to John Hamm. Uh, I think it's what he'll always be known for, um, for better or worse. I just think it's like when I see John Slattery, I picture like the 1950s, 60s, like him in a suit. Him drinking a bottle of scotch and him in like the dark rimmed glasses. Like that's who I, that's who he is. So he'll always be Roger Sterling to me. Fully agree. Do you want to see if folks want to take a stab at the top 10 of this best John Slattery movies? Not roles, but movies. Yeah, why not? It's not really his performance. So even if he has a tiny, tiny role, just think of the movies itself. So Spotlight is definitely in there. That's number one. Bad Company. Nope. What? No, it didn't make the cut. Okay. Endgame? Nope. Endgame is not in the top three. Really? Are any of the Marvel ones in there? Two, two. Marvel ones, actually. Come on, yeah. Kyle. I know yep. better than you. Come on. There's two. Rigby, There's huge two. Marvel guy. Civil War? Yeah, Civil War is number three. Okay. Iron Man 2. Iron Man 2? Iron Man 2 is not on the list. Charlie Wilson's War. Yeah, number nine. Flags of Our Fathers. So then Ant-Man? Ant-Man is number seven. One is a documentary. I'll say, I'll uh, give you a hint there. The Mea Culpa. Mea, Mea, Mea Maxima Culpa, yep. Yeah. Number two. The Station. Alex, Alex gave station me Station Agent's got to be in there. We didn't talk about that. He's just like barely in it, but that's a great yep. movie. That's number four. Traffic? I know The Station Agent is directed by Traffic, yes. That's number six. Station Agent is also directed by Todd McCarthy. Todd yeah. McCarthy, correct. <laughs> it was a big Sundance thing, I think, yeah. right? Someone said Flags of Our Fathers earlier. That's number eight. So we're only missing number five, which is a movie we did not discuss. I don't think we said 10 yet, did we? Uh, oh, yeah. No one said 10. 10 is a movie that we covered on a previous episode. There's my hint. Eraser? <laughs> <laughs> Eraser. No, I think Warren would love Eraser. Oh, God's Pocket? Nope. nope. It's a, a role I like. Okay. Yeah, it's, I, I like him in this, too. He's, a, he's like a bureaucrat in this. Adjustment Bureau? Adjustment Bureau, nice. Oh, I like We didn't talk about number five, Riggs, and it's a movie I watched because I was, it's two and a half hours long with a lot of really good actors, and I was like, is this good? And I realized it was so mid, it was incredible. Yeah, it's, that's the, that movie is the ultimate mid movie. Sleepers. I don't even, I don't even, yeah, Sleepers. I don't even remember his uh, role in this. It's so small, you'll miss it. 
That's why we didn't. I didn't put it in the show notes. We talked about it now. But I mean, Kevin, Kevin Bacon, Brad Pitt, Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, Mini Driver, Brad Renfro. It's an incredible cast for an extremely mid movie. Mm. The first half of Sleepers is awesome. The second half is a snooze fest. Completely agree. Basically, up up until the point where Kevin Bacon is killed in the bar, the movie mm-hmm. kicks ass. And then, like, the whole legal thing about how they try to get off after killing him is so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Absolute buzzkill, this movie. I was locked in for the first hour. I was like, Me shit, that's the greatest movie I've ever seen. And then I realized why it's, like, a 48 Metascore. It's on, like, it's on, like, every streaming service, so you shouldn't have trouble tracking it down. When was the article written? It has to be before Endgame. I would be shocked if Endgame was on, not on there and Ant-Man was. I don't think it has a date actually on here. It's the only list I could find. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. <laughs> well, yeah, Endgame should be on there. If yeah. any other yeah. Marvel movie's on there, Endgame should be on there. Yeah, because he actually has like an important, like, like, yeah, like I think he has, is actually quite good in Endgame for the yeah. limited uh-huh. amount of time he has. Yeah, Endgame is not even on this list and it's 39 movies, so there you go. So <laughs> we'll boot adjustment burial off the top 10 and that Avengers <laughs> Endgame somewhere in there, which is interesting because sleepers should not be in the top 10 movies, but here we no, are. It shouldn't. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> but I agree in that the top two being spotlight and then the documentary Mia Max Culpa, they're both incredible. All right, let's get into the Munson meter. What we do, we rate every actor in a scale of zero to a hundred based on a variety of factors that could include Anything from longevity, project choice, pop culture impact, acting range, awards footprint, any other talents they might have, personal life, comedic chops, box office success, or lack thereof, and anything else that matters to us as Munsons. All right, we're going to start this time with the native Bostonian James D'Imperio. Yeah, I mean, other than holding his birthplace against him, uh, I'm a big John Slattery fan. I enjoy him in almost everything I see him, even in movies that stink. I find him incredibly charming. Um, I like his kind of polite and dry sarcasm. Um, He's able to throw a good one-liner in there. He's been nominated for a bunch of awards, hasn't brought home a ton of them. I think he deserved one for Roger Sterling. I think it's one of the uh, best characters on that show. Uh, definitely the easiest one to root for. Every time he's interviewed, he gives incredibly honest and vulnerable and authentic answers. And people ask him, hey, are you worried that your movies don't do too well? And he'll say, no, not at all, because I'm usually not the guy out front anyway, so it doesn't really matter if my movies do too well. Uh, he is asked, oh, do you, are you looking for another role like Mad Men? And he's like, no, because I got into acting because I just wanted to do a bunch of different stuff. I don't want to be the same you know, character over and over again, even though that's going to be the character that defines his career. He enjoys kind of the the spice of life that comes with the roles. And when you hear someone kind of talk that open and honest, as opposed to the canned Hollywood answers, where it's like, my publicist told me to say this, so I'm going to say this. I respect that. Um, I think he got onto film a little late in the game uh, because of his success in TV in regards to Mad Men. And I think he got pushed into a role that he thrives in, which is the handsome uh, older boyfriend or authoritative figure. Um, And I think he's very good at that, but I'm excited to see him kind of bridge out and do more things. Um, I'm going to give him a 61. Aubrey. Uh, I like John Slattery. He, for a long time, he was the guy from Mad Men. And I think that that is, you know, 
a iconic role like that. He has something that a lot of actors don't have, which is he's tied to a great show, like an all time great show with a with a great character. Mm-hmm. So I think he gets a lot of points for that. Oh, like overall looking through his career, I like him. I like when he shows up, but I don't. I didn't see a ton of movies that I was really drawn to. I didn't see a lot of versatility. I didn't see him like really give a ton of like like blow me away performances. I like him. He seems like a cool guy. It was a great point about his interviews. He seems like someone that like I'm interested in him in all the different ways. I just the work that just wasn't there in a way that I wanted it to be. I think he's a great actor. I think he is especially good in TV. I think as a supporting actor, he's he could be like all time great if he can just keep kind of like nailing down really good spots on TV series or even in movies. Um, I settled at like a sixty. Case. Yeah, I like what's been said so far. The uh, knock I would have on him is I don't. He do, he's not drawing me to any movies. Top of that, a lot of the movies that he's been in, like I had to really get into that movie to figure out who he was in that movie. I appreciate the fact that there's no bullshit around his life and there's no controversies and all that. I, I just like somebody that enjoys what they do and and have a, have a good clean life. So again, in my imaginary world of imaginary numbers, I'm going to give him a 58. Marty or Gus Munson. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with pretty much what everybody else has already said. Um, one thing that I, I I think is often underappreciated is just being able to have consistent work. And it seems like, mm-hmm. you know, with the exception of maybe the first 20 years of his uh, <laughs> acting career, you know, like he, he started in the 90s having pretty consistent work and was on you know, 17 episodes of a show here, 20 episodes of a show here. And that's, that's really, really, I th- I think that that's underappreciated in terms of like an actor's just like ability to live and continue doing what they love. Um, you know, I, I don't think he's like a household name other than Mad Men, which is a bit of a bummer. And I think what everybody has already said is that like, he doesn't mainline movies, right? He doesn't, mm-hmm. nobody goes to the movies to see him. And also he's not getting roles that put him in the center of the screen. So there's unfortunately just if you're doing a star meter, that's going to be a little bit lower. I haven't done this for 81 episodes, so maybe my ratings are a little off, but I'm just going to go for a 70 with him. Rigby. Roger Serling represent 69. (laughs) (laughs) All right, I'll I'll round us out here. Uh, I, I don't know how I can top that, but I'll do my best. You can't. It's not possible. Just accept the inevitable here. I'm going to be a little bit of a downer. Michael Caine was so much fun. I loved it. He's their second highest rated Munson. And 99% of the time, I enjoy this process. I didn't enjoy it with John Slatter, to be completely honest. Most One, I'm not a Mad Men fan, and I don't watch a ton of TV. So that's like already setting me up for failure with John Slattery, since so much of his prominent work is there. And two, when he shows up in a movie... You can barely spot him most of the time. <laughs> and number three, the movies where he does play a prominent role, most of them are mid at best. And outside of like Spotlight, there's really nothing that I would go out of my way to watch again. And I hate saying it because he's a talented guy, but there's no theater background. There's no like other talent. His directing, God's Pocket, is super mid as well. Like it's not a great movie. Uh, I mean, he's a supporting actor who kind of disappears into a lot of projects. Most of his jokes, I've watched interviews with him today, a bunch of them. Most of his jokes, they fall flat every time he makes a joke. Like, (laughs) barely anybody laughs. The crowd, like, doesn't really react to him. 
And I'm like, damn, I want to find ways to like give him points, but I can't do it. I can't. I looked at my lowest score of all time is Kristen Shaw to 51, and I can't give him a score higher than Kristen Shaw. I still love some of Kristen Shaw's work, and we'll go back to more things of her. So mm-hmm. I'm going to give him a 50. I hate doing it. I had to like manufacture to get a 50 with my score. Sorry, guys. We don't score a shame here. That's right. Kyle, now that you said it, he's, you've seen him tell a lot of jokes as Vail Flat. I feel like I need to give him more points. I'm to <laughs> like him more. <laughs> I know how that feels. Reminded me of myself too much. I don't solidarity. It's weird. But yeah, I mean, I looked at like the only thing I gave him good points for longevity, but for everything else, range. He really didn't have much range. Plays one or two characters his entire career. What about his thought, his feelings on the Catholic Church, Kyle? You didn't give him any points for that. That's true. Uh, you know, I think I already tried to generate some points to get him out of the forties. Right, fair so. enough. <laughs> Originally, it was a forty-three. That's how I got to 50. All right. With that, that gives John Slattery, Slatty Daddy, a 61.33, which puts him in 70th place, which is just right around his box office score. Box office. So he's right behind David Spade and just above Luis Guzman. I'm proud that I went first and I chose 61. And 10 minutes later, after everyone had their varying discussions, we ended on 61. I'm glad I could lead the way for everybody here. (laughs) Absolutely spot on, my friend. All right, uh, for this really long next segment for Aubrey, uh, what does John Slattery have coming? All right, everybody settle in. Oh, no. He's got nothing. Oh, Oh, shit. (laughs) Oh, dude, he's just like me. (laughs) Who who earlier said, I can't wait to see what he does next? I was giggling internally because I was like, I don't know if he's got anything. (laughs) I don't like hearing that. Oh, man. I imagine something will eventually come up. The good fight's got to still be going on, right? That thing is never ending. (laughs) You know what? Good for him. The guy's got royalty checks coming in. Do nothing. If I had royalty checks coming in, I could make a living on. You bet your ass mine would say nothing as well. I agree. Happily married, living in Manhattan, just living his best life. Yeah. Good for him. Yep. In fact, I'm going to give him a 92 now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were already past that point, Craig. I can't, I'd have to re- re-record all of it. We can't do it. Dang it. All right, next podcast is going to hit on April 20th, 420. For all the stoners out there in the world, they're going to finally get the, the Munson's episode they wanted and desired for years. The featured guest is Mike Vandevort. He was here for our Anthony Mackie episode. Oh, yeah. He's a Zoom in the movies. Funny guy. The voiceover guy, right? Yep. Does the voiceovers. Does a lot of acting. Fellow Fi Sai. And these are the five actors that were on the wheel that the wheel chose, and he joined us for one of them. We have Gina Davis, Anthony Heald, Matt Frewer, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Michael Ely. Star-studded affair here. Is Matt Frewer the guy from the guy from Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? Yes. It is. <laughs> yes, it is. Wow. Wow. That's a pull. I'm not going to lie to you. This is the least inspiring wheel I've ever seen in 82 episodes. I just want you guys out of it. Yeah. I saw Michael Ely for 10 seconds in Bad Company. <laughs> so you got part of your research done. The Michael Ely route is a ride. Yeah. Going to watch all the barbershops. There's some stuff. In the- <laughs> He's got some <laughs> just bad ones. Beyonce music video. The, the, movie, the movie that came out a few years ago with he and Hillary Swank was so bad. Where he <laughs> cheats on his wife with Hillary Swank. That was bad. Really, a kind of a fun show with Michael Ely is called Sleeper Cell. It's on Showtime. Huh? 
I recommend it. It's about a terrace cell. That's a good watch. I think it's only like one or two seasons, too. I'm here for the Michael Healy ep- uh, Ely episode. I just want to make that. I'm here for that episode. I am, too. I like him. I like that guy. I know nothing about him, so I'd be doing it. I'd be down. I don't know if he... Is he in any Tyler Perry movies? I feel like I've seen him in some Tyler Perry movies. I think uh, he probably is. He's in the Barbershop movies. I know that. Yeah, I know the Barbershop ones. I know he's in Think Like a Man too. <laughs> yeah, we'd have some fun. We'd have some fun with that one, I think. I'm with you. Anthony Heald's the bad guy or the bad rich guy in like every 90s movie. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he's a bad guy in a lot of films. Yeah. I remember him as the Dean and Accepted. That's like the main one I think of. Yeah. The the Van Horn Gateway, Kyle. <laughs> Anthony Heald's most famous role is probably as uh, Dr. Chilton in Signs of the Lamb. Yeah, I was going to say, he's the, dude, he's the doctor. Yep. He's been around a while. Deep Rising, another one. Give me Gina Davis. Yeah. Yeah, Gina Davis would be... We definitely watch the best movies if we did Gina Davis. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Thelma and Louise is awesome, and so is The League of Their Own. Great movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just an excuse to watch The League of Their Own. Mm-hmm. Kiss the Girl, or The Long Kiss Goodnight is good, too. That's yep. a fun action movie. Very good. Another Boston girl. You're right. Gina Davis, really? She went to Boston University. I don't know if she's from Boston, but I'd imagine she is. Well, that settles it. Gina Davis. <laughs> <laughs> she won an Oscar for Thelma and Louise. We talked about that last episode. Mm-hmm. Thelma. With Sarandon. Yeah. More Sarandon there. Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow. Maybe it would give me an opportunity to reevaluate if I like her as a human, because I don't know if I love Gwyneth Paltrow as a human. Yeah. She's just an odd duck, you know? Has she done anything recently? You can she revisit is. Iron Man 2. Yeah. She's kind of like Cameron Diaz, <laughs> where she's just focused more. She's all like business now. She just doesn't really do movies anymore, I don't think. Shakespeare in Love, Emma. We could talk about the song she recorded with uh, Huey Lewis. Huey Lewis. That song's not bad. Cruising. Oh. The final words write themselves. Brag on that one. Play that song. Fun fact about Gwyneth Paltrow is that, and Shakespeare in Love, is that that's the movie that's playing in Scary Movie when Regina Hall gets killed. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> this is for Big Mama's house. Watch Contagion again, too. Oh, Contagion's good. Mm-hmm. She's in some good ones. I mean, uh, fucking, what is it, Shallow Hell? I would watch Shallow Hell. I've heard Shallow Hell hasn't aged very well. I mean, Seven. Seven's the one that comes to mind for me. I forgot she's in Seven. You gotta do Gwyneth Paltrow just to have an yeah, hour long. Yeah, her head's in the box. Royal Tenenbaums, the talented Mr. Ripley. She's in some bangers, man. Mm-hmm. I talented Mr. Ripley, too, damn. The intern? So who do we think Mike would pick? He picked Anthony Mackie last. I'm going Gina Davis. She's in Hook. Oh, Gwyneth Paltrow? Yeah. I'm going Paltrow. She plays Wendy and Hook. She was Tinkerbell, didn't she? Yeah. She's young Wendy Darling. Oh, okay. That's right. All right. I think it's Paltrow. Okay. I think it's Gina Davis. James? I'll be genuinely shocked if it's Matt Frewer, because I don't know if I know him from anything. <laughs> He's in Dawn of the Dead. What do I know him from? Who's he in Dawn of the Dead? He is in Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. We watched some old stuff there, but oh, he's in he's Moloch or in Watchmen. That's the other one I think of him. The the dude that gets murdered. Yeah, he's in it for like thirty seconds. Spoiler. Yeah, yeah, I'm long enough to die. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. Um, well, we don't decide. Uh, Mike doesn't decide. Monty doesn't decide. The wheel decides, and we'll see what happens. All right, Monty, we reached the end of this journey. 
It's your chance to plug anything you're working on. Wise words for our audience. We always appreciate you being here, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me as always. Um, if you're interested in Pokemon content, which is what I do on my YouTube channel, you can check that out at uh, Flygon HG, F L Y G O N H G. Other than that, just um, come back in a year and I'll be on another episode of Munson's. <laughs> Start talking about the Munson's during your streams, you know? Really pop that out there. I mean, streams is probably like six, six views. But the, the, the YouTube videos, they, they get watched a lot. We so. Well, as the resident Pokemon nerd here, I appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, seriously. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Always glad to have you, my friend. All right. Well, as we wrap this thing up, you can find us on Twitter, Munson's at Movies. You can find us on Instagram, Munson's at the Movies. You can email us, Munson's at the Movies at gmail.com. Any final thoughts? From John Slattery. (laughs) (laughs) You got me this time, Kirby. You're all fired. Munson's out. All right, let's go. Thank you for the education, gentlemen. We've just received a PhD in stupidity. I have people skills. I am good at dealing with people. Can't you understand it? What the hell is wrong with you people?